This is episode 170 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Human Skin Organoids, with Dr. Carl Kohler. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. All right, listeners, we have big news. Arun and I will be attending the 2020 ISSCR annual meeting. It's taking place online from June 23rd to the 27th. And to keep you all up to date with the latest research being discussed at the meeting, we'll be releasing daily YouTube videos, rounding up all the talks that we attended virtually each and every day. To keep up with us throughout the conference, you can follow at Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or subscribe to the Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel, where we'll be releasing our daily video roundups. Today, we have Dr. Carl Kohler, who we were chasing down at last year's ISSCR the whole time. He's from Boston Children's Hospital, where he recently relocated. He's on the podcast to talk about his research into developing skin organoids, skin organoids with hair. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to Dermal Cell News, covering everything from dermal stem cells and tissue regeneration to skin cancers and disorders. Dermal Cell News keeps readers current with the latest news, research policy, events, and jobs relevant to the dermal cell community. So check out Dermal Cell News and the rest of Stem Cell's scientific newsletters at www.dermalcellnews.com. All right, guys, we're going to kick off the roundup with a diff story. Uh, this is a massive diff story. You know, the elephant in the room with stem cell differentiation is that there's huge variation in the cells that you get. And it depends on a lot of things. You know, the input, if you put in 5,000 cells versus 10,000 cells, you could get a different result. You know, it's we're learning a lot more about this with organoids and the heterogeneity. Uh, we'll talk about that with Carl. But there's also other factors, you know, like there was a huge finding when IPS cells first came out that there was this epigenetic memory that plays a role. Um, there's also genetic variability, you know, it probably plays a role as well. That's not been well studied. Um, the studies that have been done, they've looked at very early differentiation, looking at this like epigenetic memory, whatever. It's pretty much the primary germ layers. This is a story from Frederick Livesey, who's at University College London, where they were looking at more further down the line, okay, looking at more somatic cell types that are a result of directed differentiation um, with the idea that you need to look downstream to really zero in on what the effect of this epigenetic memory, what have you, is on the terminal cell types that you want to get, right? And they focused on the cerebral cortex, right, because that's a lot, there's a lot of relevance there in human development and uh, pathology, can't get human brain, has a lot of implications for neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative disorders. Um, and what they did effectively here is they did a ton of diffs. They did 126 differentiations of 61 stem cell lines that were derived from 37 individuals, okay? 37 IPS, uh, or 61 IPS cell lines from 31 people. And what they found is that there's variation, of course, yes. And most of that variation occurs uh, across an axis of gene expression that reflects dorsoventral and rostrocaudal uh, 
you know, regional localization. Um, and it reminds me of a paper we talked about in the last episode. Remember that about the Mr. Technology and Nature Biotechnology. Um, they were looking at, you know, rostrocardial development in a similar fashion. Um, and here they found that the variations uh, were driven really by wind signaling. And that's another callback to that paper. Wind signaling seems to be really prevalent in this. And um, not only did they show that wind was a factor in mediating this differential outcome, but then they were able to kind of flatten the curve there. Sorry to borrow that from COVID. That's kind of dumb. But uh, they like they flattened the outcome. <laughs> Okay, which is to say that if they tuned wind in just this narrow window early on, they could reduce that variability. So it's a nice little story that's focused on the basics, what makes up this variability and differentiation, and how can you overcome it, and how can you overcome these biases? And I think they show that you can do that by modulating this one signaling pathway, and it remains to be seen if the same will hold true in other, uh, you know, more directed differentiation protocols we'll have to see. Yeah, wind signaling is critical for all sorts of differentiation, you know, whether it's cardiac, whether it's neural, like we're talking about here, a compound that's really important across the board for modulating wind signaling in these differentiation protocols is CHEER 99021. It's something that I use pretty much every single day. Uh, but, you know, as somebody who uses CHEER, I know there's variability in its effect, not only based on the dose that you use it at, but the right time point that you use it at. So if you use it maybe even a few hours after a certain window that you're supposed to, then it might not have the right effect in terms of inducing uh, the signaling that you want it to. So it kind of brings me back to this huge scale differentiation that you're talking about. They're talking about like 60 plus lines, 100 plus rounds of differentiation. There's robots to do this. There are robots that do differentiation. Why haven't the robots taken over day long? Well, I can't answer that, Arun, but I, I think that they're necessary in the future. We're going to need robots to do everything. I mean, I, I could use a robot in my lab. I think that the, the other um, interesting point here is that, like I started by saying, the elephant in the room about diffs is that, you know, day to day you get totally different outcomes. And this is with Cortex here is using this dual SMAD inhibition, which is one of the most robust protocols because you pretty much shut everything down. Um, and even in that you get variability. So I'd be interested to see how, you know, widespread this variability is across other lineages. And I, I would expect to see that getting consistent diffs in say hematopoiesis, which I'm going to come around to in my next story, is going to be even more of a challenge. So anything that can help to, you know, normalize or overcome the biases in, in lineage specific differentiation is going to be critical to translating these cells into therapies. Well, you know, one thing that can reduce the biases and the variability and differentiation, robots. I'm telling you, man, it's the wave <laughs> of the future. Uh, you know, I can, I can dream, right? I can dream. But moving on to our second paper of the roundup, I'm going to talk about gastroloids. And these are clusters of stem cell-derived cells that can mimic early human development and gastrulation in particular. So we know that during development, the human embryo is a kind of a black box and you're not really allowed to take a close look at how human embryos develop, obviously, because there are ethical hurdles. There's a so-called 14-day rule, which actually restricts in vitro studies to only looking at pre-implantation events. And there's a new model out there, you know, these gastroloids, uh, that can use embryonic stem cells to look at some of these early processes and maybe get around that, that 
uh, milestone, that day 14 rule. And so this is work that's coming from Naomi Morris and Alfonso Martinez Arias over there in the, the UK in the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. What they're able to do is generate human gastroloids. Uh, we've talked about mouse gastroloids a little bit a few episodes ago on this podcast. These are human ESL-derived uh, gastroloids, which are able to really nicely recapitulate the structure and morphology of human uh, gastrulation, which is really exciting. So these things are able to develop an AP axis. They're able to polarize um, in the right locations. They're able to actually localize the development of the three different germ layers, ectoderm, endoderm, and uh, mesoderm, where they're supposed to be. There are certainly a few differences. It is an in vitro model after all. But Overall, transcriptomically, these gastroloids are pretty similar to uh, the real thing, real human uh, development. And they're also comparable to the mouse gastroloid too. So it's a, it's a resource, and I'm sure there's a million things that are in the works. Um, what the authors actually immediately thought of here was looking at defects during human development. Of course, it's thought that gastrulation is perhaps the window in which the most birth defects may arise because this is a really critical stage of development where if something goes wrong, that can be propagated down the road. And so the authors were suggesting that this can be a really powerful, potentially high throughput tool to look at early human development and perhaps, like I mentioned, to sort of get around that black box that we're not allowed to really delve into. This is a trip because... You know, when I think back of the track of uh, human ESL work and iPSL work, it started, you know, the OID started early. It was the embryoid bodies. And I know we've talked about blastoids and now we're at the gastroloids and the OIDs keep on coming. I, I think when you talk about organoids, you're kind of divorced from the idea of selfhood because it's just the organ that, that kind of was created out of the, some onlage that you artificially created. But um, these gastroids raise another issue to, my, to me in my mind. As we move closer to this native human development and the primary events, and I think we'll talk with Carl about this, like, like once you get this ball rolling, it kind of builds itself, you know? You need to just plant the nidus and then the crosstalk creates a thing. And I wonder if there's going to be a lot of people sounding off about selfhood of these gastroloids and whether or not we're wandering into territory that's precarious vis-a-vis neural tube and, you know, that type of uh, higher order development. Yeah, it's a valid question. Anytime you try to model human development in a dish, you're going to have some of these ethical concerns pop up. You know, I, I was looking through some of the other commentaries in regards to this paper, and there are uh, bioethicists who have weighed in on this. And it seems like for the most part, they're okay with this work, in part because they're actually not able to establish really significant neural development in these gastroloids. So that's that's one thing. Two is that they can't implant because they are devoid of that extra embryonic like uh, placental tissue. So the thought is this is a purely in vitro model. And since it doesn't really have any capacity for uh, true development beyond this window, um, it's bioethically perhaps a more amenable, more compatible thing to work with. 
All right. Well, then I can rest at ease that my gastroids <laughs> aren't going to come after me uh, when I piss them <laughs> off. Um, well, there's no bioethical debate about cancer. We're trying to kill it. You know, I don't think there's any more uniform opinion. There's no one out there fighting for cancer. All right. Uh, so we can get on board with that. And I got a story here from Dan Kaufman, who is at UCSD La Jolla. Uh, he's been working on this via natural killer cells um, for a long while. Uh, and this is another story in that vein. Natural killer cells, they're distinguished from the other kind of immunotherapy or other immunotherapies, but the most notable one being the CAR-T, because these natural killer cells, they have this intrinsic ability to kill virus-infected or tumor cells without being sensitized um, by an antigen, right? Unlike CAR-T, which kind of have to be entrained on a particular antigen epitope. Um, and you get there's been a lot of clinical trials showing efficacy of N NK cells, either from peripheral blood or umbilical cord blood, showing that they're safe. And this is critical, safe without causing toxicity uh, like cytokine release syndrome or the neurotoxicity that's been associated with CAR T cells. Also, no graft-first-host disease because these NK cells are transient. They get in and they don't stick around, right? They persist for a very short period of time in vivo. Uh, unlike the CAR T cells that can persist, persist and 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 you know function for months, even years, right? So uh, the Kaufman lab for a long while they've been focused on using these NK cells to one make them more persistent in vivo to increase their longevity, but also just to increase their tumor killing ability. And there's been a spate of papers he's come out with in the last few years where he's engineered. Uh, IPS cells, either putting some CAR-T aspects in and knocking some things out, stabilizing expression of CD16, for example. He's done all these manipulations using CRISPR and engineering to create these kind of stem cell lines, right? And this is, again, another one in that vein here. What they're going after is to increase the longevity of the NK cells by increasing their sensitivity to IL-15. Okay, it's a cytokine that's mediated with the activation, proliferation, and the, the, the action of these NK cells. Um, and the way they increase the sensitivity here was by knocking out this modulator of IL-15. It's called cytokine-inducible SH2-containing protein. We'll call that KISH, okay? They knocked out KISH in these IPS cells. And they showed indeed that when they did that, it improved their expansion, it increased their cytotoxic activity, uh, it increased their persistence in vivo, it inhibited this tumor progression, it saved the lives of a bunch of mice uh, in this leukemia xenograft model. Um, and then they showed how it worked, and this is why it was a cell, cell stem cell paper. Mechanistically, they showed that this was a, a metabolic reprogramming, so they kind of you know, fired up the metabolism of these cells. And metabolism has been linked to the action of immune cells across the board, and particularly NK cells. So they fired up the metabolic activity of these cells, and that was correlated with uh, improved action and, and function. The only thing I would say, caveats here, um, is that in terms of the, the in vivo data, there were, there were five mice uh, in each group, um, and while the control natural killer cells, like all the mice died, the knockout natural killer cells 
uh, showed a dramatic effect. All the mice survived, but I, I would wonder why, you know, the natural killer cells alone had such a paltry effect. It's not very uh, impressive. Um, and the other thing is, is when you talk about persistence, I mean, they looked at the persistence of these cells, but I will say that they looked at one time point at, at one week and showed that there were in fact more cells in the knockout, but I, I don't know about longevity because I, maybe I missed it. It was in the supplement or something, but I didn't see at first glance that they had cells that persisted out longer at, at more distal time points. So Kaufman Lab, uh, Huang Zhu, first author, please. Uh, send us a tweet or something to correct me on that if I'm wrong. Regardless, this is a big story. Uh, another in, in the catalog of the Kaufman lab where they're using genetic engineering to make these cells more effective. And this is the real key. You can scale this, right? You can genetically manipulate an IPS cell line at the root and then generate unlimited amounts of natural killer cells. And there's good protocols for that. So this is something that really therapeutically is, is viable because it's also allogeneic. Remember, you don't have to have a patient match exactly. So it's a nice story, cell stem cell clinical translational report. Like you mentioned, no one's really shedding a tear for cancer these days. We're all trying to get rid of it for sure. This is a really, really hot topic, like you mentioned, uh, immunotherapy, right? And using NK cells, CAR T cells for targeting solid and liquid tumors, that's kind of the, the wave of the future. Certainly, there are a lot of things to talk about, especially with CAR T when it comes to cell exhaustion and whatnot. But here you're talking about hyperactivation of NK cells. And I didn't take a really deep dive into the paper, and I don't know too much about immunotherapy, to be honest with you. But when I'm thinking about hyperacting, hyperactivating something like an NK cell, that's that starts, you know, that that starts me thinking that there could be some off-target effects, right? Anytime you're hyperactivating an immune population, there's got to be some other, you know, downstream effects that you're not expecting, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because there was a note in the paper. I mean, in terms of the mechanism, they showed that part of the the reason why these cells are so, uh, you know, good is because they exhibit this increased polyfunctionality, uh, which is defined as uh, cells that are expressing two or more cytokines. So remember, part of the rationale for using NK cells is that you can avoid that cytotoxicity related to cytokine release syndrome. Um, so you have to wonder if uh, increasing the amount of cytokines that these cells are producing may kind of abrogate any benefit of their you know, reduced cytotoxicity. Again, first author, last author, any author, you can sound off and correct me on that. Again, this is not my expertise, nor is it a runes, but just ideas we're thinking through. Uh, you know, seems like a therapy. You want to get it into the clinic. Wonder what maybe the downsides might be. It's something that we are admiring from afar. That's that's for sure. Not our expertise, but we can definitely admire the work. And something else that we're admiring from afar is a, a paper that came out less than 24 hours ago from the recording of this podcast. It's from uh, Laura Pellegrini and Madeline Lancaster, who is really an incredibly well-known um, researcher in the field of organoid biology. They're over there in uh, in Cambridge in the UK. This is this is really a trip. The title of this paper is Human CNS Barrier Forming Organoids with Cerebral Spinal Fluid Production. Yeah, yeah, you, you heard me 
right? So we know the cerebral spinal fluid is a vital liquid, right? It provides nutrients and signaling molecules and clears out toxic byproducts from the brain. And it's produced by the choroid plexus, which is a protective epithelial barrier that actually prevents free entry from the blood. So it's establishing this barrier system, right? Sort of similar to the blood-brain barrier. And what they did there, here in, the, in this paper, is that they established the human choroid plexus organoids with a selective barrier, and they actually contain some cerebral spinal fluid-like fluid secretions in these little bubbles of, you know, fluid. It's it's wild to take a look at. Um, you can just see it. You can take a look for yourself in this paper. It's just these little bubbles of cerebral spinal fluid that are showing up in these organoids. And, and I almost just want to take a needle to them and just pop them. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they did that. But yeah, yeah, they established a differentiation protocol to, to make these organoids. Um, they're able to characterize them and compare them to the real thing. They, of course, did single cell analysis to compare uh, these organoids to other organoids like telencephalic organoids um, uh, as a transcriptomic comparison. The other really awesome thing is that they demonstrated these uh, choroid plexus organoids had a barrier function. So they did actually a really simple but very elegant experiment. They introduced a, a dye, a colored, you know, fluorescent dye into a, an in vitro dish that's holding one of these bubble-like structures. And you can just look at it from figure 3E that the entire dish is just covered in blue dye, except for the, the bubbles themselves, which are totally clear. And that's suggesting that the dye is not able to actually enter into these organoids. And there's a actual tightly sealed barrier that's forming there. Um, different size uh, dyes are not able to get in. Next thing they did was actually take that a step further and predict that the small molecules that you would expect to be blocked by this barrier are actually blocked. So certain drugs are not able to get in. Finally, they did some proteomic analysis, which is, again, really, really simple, very beautiful, a really beautiful experiment. They just extracted some of the liquid from inside of these little bubbles and then did some proteomics on it to really compare uh, these pseudo cerebral spinal fluid and these organoids to the real deal. And once again, they're able to show that it's pretty comparable. The proteins that you'd expect to be there are there. So this is, uh, this is wild. This is a really awesome application of organoid biology coming from a world leader in organoid biology in Madeline Lancaster. And shout out to Dr. Lancaster because she's actually going to be joining us on the podcast for an ISCR episode, not too long from now. So very convenient. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. What an exciting time to be alive, Arun. This is amazing work, and you described it perfectly. It's so simple, and the best things are because it's, it, it works. You know, it's, it's something that uh, is recapitulating a biological phenomenon that's been in play for eons, right? Um, and I think we, we'll, we'll talk about this, too, with Carl, because this is what makes it so exciting to be in pluripotent stem cell research right now, right, is that you're not getting cells anymore. You're getting the tissues and you're getting their function. You know, you're getting their output. I know in this hair paper, which we're not going to talk about in the roundup because Carl's going to get into it, but these these 
these organoids that they made in the lab there, they had sebum, you know, they had all the things that you don't think about because you're so focused on the operative cell type that you don't realize that there's all these accessories. So this is another accessory cell type that I know it's a clean prep and we're not talking about all the heterogeneity here, but this is a clean prep that's going to really have a huge splash in pharma, as you were alluding to, because it's selectively permeable and it's going to be an amazing model to build on. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably going to be the standard bear for all kind of drug modeling and selective permeability in, in the choroid plexus uh, in, in future studies. So amazing work. I can't wait to talk to Dr. Lancaster about that in a few weeks. Yeah, the thing that blows me away with, you know, both Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Kohler's work is the fact that I think a lot of these protocols, Carl said it himself, a lot of these protocols are, you know, just a happy surprise sometimes. Uh, you know, sometimes you do a differentiation and you get a population that you weren't expecting to get. And maybe that was the case here with uh, the, the Lancaster paper too. Maybe they were doing some sort of other neural differentiation and all of a sudden they were like, wait a minute, these things are forming bubbles and inside those bubbles is actual cerebral spinal fluid. How do we actually further refine that protocol to get the, the differentiation that we want? I think uh, it's beautiful and it's coming back to modeling development in a dish. Everything comes back from, to these developmental principles. And if you can perfectly replicate those, then you know, the sky's the limit. You can make whatever tissue, whatever cell type you want. Just before we push on to our interview with Dr. Kohler, I've got a short message from Stem Cell Technologies. Do you love organoids like we do? We cover them plenty on the show, but there's always more to know. If you're looking for more information on organoids, you should download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques. Developed in collaboration with Wiley, publishing this essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid techniques from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading list also provide further background on many of the topics covered. You can download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid ebook. All right, you guys, this episode, we have the special pleasure of having a guest on the show that I've been trying to get for a year. Since the ISSCR last year, I've been chasing this guy down. His name is Carl Kohler. He's assistant professor of otolaryngology, that's a mouthful, uh, at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, the Kohler Lab focuses on using human organoid systems as a platform to develop regenerative therapies for the inner ear and various craniofacial tissues. Dr. Kohler, thank you so much for have, uh, coming on the show, uh, being a guest with us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, so Carl, the timing is absolutely perfect to have you here on the Stem Cell Podcast. Your lab just published a paper in Nature about pluripotent stem cell-derived advanced human skin organoids that contain hair. So first of all, congrats. I hear this Thank paper- you. Yeah, I hear this paper was in the works for like six plus years, right? So talk about yeah. determination. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> your protocol is able to create quote-unquote 
functional human skin after a five-month-long differentiation process where the organoids contain all the different cell types and you know structures that you would find in skin, like stratified epidermis, fat-rich dermis, and pigmented hair too, right? So I won't steal your thunder, and why don't you walk us through the paper? In particular, talk a little bit about how you're able to actually fine-tune this differentiation protocol and develop it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's been very exciting. The paper just came out, um, and as you said, the culmination of six plus years of work uh, that I started as a grad student back at uh, Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, this work kind of, uh, I've heard it described as an outgrowth, <laughs> no pun intended, of our of our previous work on uh, developing inner ear organoids. So I'm, I'm in the Department of Otolaryngology at Boston Children's Hospital, and I was in the same department back in Indiana. Um, and my graduate work was focused on trying to generate inner ear tissue from stem cells, from pluripotent stem cells. Um, and as a graduate student, we were ultimately successful in doing that. Um, we adapted a protocol that was developed by Yoshiki Sasai's group to develop the first retinal organoids. So we, we figured out how to turn an eye into an ear. And, and in so doing, we found that um, uh, just as a byproduct, we were getting some skin tissue to develop. We were kind of casting a wide net and getting a lot of tissues that developed in and around the ear, uh, including skin. Um, and we thought it was this kind of uh, pesky byproduct of, of the process. And we were trying to eliminate skin development and, and maximize our efficiency of otic induction. Um, but uh, ultimately, we, we uh, made this chance discovery that the skin actually sprouts hair follicles. Um, <clears throat> we saw co-development of, as you said, the epidermis and the dermis. Those cells seem to talk to each other the same way they do during embryonic development um, and leads to formation of hair follicles. And that was all work done with mouse stem cells. Um, in 2018, after I had started my lab, one of our first projects was to uh, kind of refine and better describe that mouse skin organoid induction uh, protocol. Um, and we, we published a paper in Cell Reports uh, showing how you can grow mouse hair uh, but obviously nobody wants mouse hair grown on their <laughs> on their bodies. So so we we quickly translated that to uh, human pluripotent stem cells, and that's what we've ultimately pub published here. Um, and because human development is so protracted compared to mouse development, um, it it took us a long time of uh, a lot of waiting to uh, to get hair follicles to develop from the human. Uh, skin organoids. Um, it it takes about 80 days, 70 to 80 days before we see uh, the first little buds of, of hair follicles growing wow. from the organ. Yeah. So this was really kind of a, a, a Herculean, Sisyphean effort from the postdoc. My first uh, hire after starting my lab, uh, Dr. Ji-Yoon Lee, she's uh, now a research associate in my lab at Boston Children's Hospital. And she uh, started working on this day one in the lab five years ago and and uh, really uh, brought it to what it ultimately became in this nature paper. Yeah, I think uh, the, the hair, it's such a, a vivid uh, visualization of, of the potency of, of 
pluripotent stem cells. I mean, it's something that's, that's tactile, right? It's something that you can see. And I think that's what's blown a lot of people away. But what really uh, was driven home for me uh, with this paper was how far we have to go, really, to, to fulfill the, the complete potential of these cells, because there were so many cell types that arose within the, these organoids and contributed to the structure and function of these organoids. But it seems like forever, since the beginning, we've been really focused on like generating, doing our diffs, and then we enzymatically digest and we sort so that we can get 100% purity of our target cell type and get rid of the quote unquote crude. You know, we're trying to get away from the crude. Um, and I think what, what you show here, and I think a lot of people are realizing with the study of organoids, is that the, the crude population is really essential for directing and informing proper differentiation of a whole, you know, of a tissue uh, that's made up of many different cell types. So do, do you think that there's paracrine or even mechanical inputs from all those accessory cells that develop in these organoids? Are they all essential? Are they all providing a molecular input for construction of the whole, um, or are they kind of just byproducts of the fact that you're getting a nice, you know, hair follicle organoid? Um, and are there other potential inputs? Because, you know, by definition, these organoids are divorced from circulation, for example. So are there inputs maybe mm -hmm. from immune cells that also may play a role and may be missing in this context? Can you speak to those questions? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. And I think that this model in particular kind of highlights the importance of these accessory tissues, as you call them, like the, the stromal or mesenchymal cells, I think, are going to get their day in the spotlight and, and have already kind of gotten their day in the spotlight in recent years with these organoid studies. Um, first in the kidney, kidney organoids, uh, there are a couple papers uh, couple years ago, showing how if you if you get the right stromal cells and mix them with the right uh, epithelial cells, then you can get more elaborate kidney structures to develop and, and better maturation of the tissues. And, and I think the same thing is going on in our skin organoid culture, where we're getting the right mesenchyme mixed with the right epithelial cells. And then you see this beautiful crosstalk between the tissues and, and development of these mini organs or appendages like hair follicles. Um, I guess I, I could kind of go into the, the details of, of how we get all these different accessory uh, tissues um, or cells. So our induction approach um, is really uh, focused on guiding development of the ectoderm, so one, one germ layer. Um, and what we can do with our initial treatments or a little recipe for inducing these skin organoids is, is um, generate what's called the surface ectoderm or the non-neural ectoderm, uh, which is the, the epithelium lining the, the surface of the embryo. Um, and, and what we've, we've found is that um, we can generate almost a pure population of these, these surface ectoderm cells. But if we intervene with an additional treatment uh, an FGF treatment with, uh, and we inhibit BNP at the very specific time, we can initiate co-development of surface ectoderm cells and neural crest cells, cranial neural crest cells. And these are a special population that develop in the, the developing head, uh, give rise to uh, uh, facial bones, the facial dermis, which is what we think we're generating, um, as well as neurons, Schwann cells, the glial cells, 
and uh, melanocytes, the pigment cells. Um, so that's where we're getting this kind of explosive diversity of, of cell types is because we're generating that, that neural crest population um, at an early stage. And so we kind of take this hands-on approach up front in the first two weeks of induction where we're adding molecules at specific times. And then, like you said, I, I think it's important. We've learned that you kind of need to take a hands-off approach and allow the cells to self-organize mm. uh, and and. And, and I think there are all, all kinds of mechanical uh, forces at play that are leading to the morphologies that we're seeing. Um, it's an inside-out model. So the interior of the aggregate of cells represents the epidermis, the top layer of the skin, and the outside represents the dermis of the skin. Hmm. Um, and, and, and we think that that organization really is, is critical for later development of the follicles. So, Carl, I remember being blown away by your talk last year during the uh, the presidential symposium at ISSCR. Um, it was actually here in LA back back when we could actually have meetings in person, which is yeah, seems no. like a like a lifetime ago, right? <laughs> so, I mean, to me, your work was really exciting in part because there's so many translational possibilities, right, ranging from skin grafts to potentially growing hair for hair replacement, but of course for any translational application, you have to think about scalability and making these mm -hmm. organoids in a way that's cheap, easy, and, and safe as well. So how do you envision scaling these organoids up for the inevitable translational applications? Yeah, yeah. So we, we've spent a lot of time in, in developing this paper um, and, and in unpublished results that we're, we're trying to uh, publish as follow-up. Uh, kind of trying to refine the method as best we can to generate uh, a, a more pure population of epidermis and dermis cells, um, <clears throat> which I think it will be critical for scaling up. Um, we're thinking about ways that we can isolate dermal progenitor cells and epidermal progenitor cells and then mash them back together and, and take one aggregate of cells and make thousands of aggregates of cells that could become their own little skin organoid units with hair follicles um, and, and develop them in a more uniform way. So the way we've published now, uh, each organoid, uh, you see the same types of cells um, and the organoids themselves look fairly similar. It's just like a little cyst with hair growing out of it, uh, but they, they do take on various shapes and sizes. And, and so there's some variability, uh, there and, and we want to try to avoid that. If we want to move to moving this into the clinic, we have to make it more uniform, more predictable, reproducible. Um, but as you said, uh, the, the hype around this paper, I've seen a lot of news articles talking about a cure for baldness. Mm -hmm. uh, but my, I, I really want to make the, the message clear is that, um, I, we're hoping that this system can be much more than uh, used for replacement of hair. I, I think because of all of these other uh, tissues that arise in exquisite organization, we can think about um, uh, modeling cancers, skin cancer development within the system. Um, we see nerves developing and actually innervating the skin, which I think is that's that's one of my the most exciting aspects of this for me. Um, we're, we're starting up collaborations with uh, with local groups here looking at whether or not we can model pain circuitry or touch circuitry and look at sensory disorders um, within the skin organoids. Um, and, and so there's there's 
kind of a wide range of, of applications for this beyond making uh, making <laughs> bald men have hair again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just cosmetic, guys. Um, yeah. Yeah, Carl, I have a, a focus. One of the major focus in my lab is the vascular system. And one of the first things I relate to people when I'm talking about circulation is that it's not just a generic conduit of tubes for distribution of blood and oxygen, nutrients, metabolism, et cetera. But uh, by contrast, it's this heterogeneous network with unique attributes. Each organ specific vascular bed has a unique paraconsignature that's vital for the function of that organ, right? And I think a lot of people think similarly about skin, even though, you know, it's obvious. You look at the, the palm of your skin, palm of your hand versus the back of your hand, it's totally different. But I don't think people really think it through to the molecular level, um, how, how pervasive those differences are, what the degree of difference is there. Um, in the paper, you zero in on this cheek, uh, chin, cheek, outer ear as the region of skin that you're generating from these organoids from mo for the most part are exclusively, I'm not sure there. How plastic is that regional specification? And at like what point you talk about this sequential differentiation where you kind of get the ball rolling by guiding the ball. Um, at what point do you think that regional identity gets locked in? In other words, like, do I have to walk back the diff from yours to a certain point and then take it down a different path to get like, you know, the skin from, you know, the bridge of my foot, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's a great point. And I think another interesting thing that we found in this paper was uh, we did, we did some, like everybody else, we're doing a lot of single cell RNA sequencing to better understand these organoid systems. And, and uh, and one thing we identified was a population of mesenchymal progenitor cells that expressed some specific markers that you you really only see in the developing pharyngeal arch one, which gives rise to the the jaw and some middle ear bones um, and the skin that overlies those structures, which is interesting from the standpoint of this is kind of a modified inner ear organoid protocol, and and we're mm. getting the skin that's kind of relation in, in close relation with the developing ear. Hmm. But one of the, one of the things we're working on moving forward. Um, so I mentioned the neural crest and how it produces the dermis of the face. Uh, the dermis of the rest of the body is formed from the mesoderm germ layer. Um, so if we wanted to tailor make skin organoids for a specific anatomical site, uh, we'd need to think about, how do we marry the surface ectoderm with the proper uh, mesodermal-derived dermis for that specific site? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's one of the things we're working on. I have a grant that's that's one of the aims that we're we're taking a look at in in the lab is can we generate surface ectoderm in uh, a specific types of dermis in parallel and then marry those two together and, and generate site-specific skin, um, which I think you mentioned the palms of the hand. That's a very specific type of skin, and it harbors a, a number of uh, uh, sensory nerve endings. Um, and so that would be interesting from a reconstructive surgery standpoint, if we could specifically generate palm skin or scalp skin, which is also uh, derived partly from the mesoderm. Hmm. 
So, Dr. Kohler, you've been around the stem cell organoid field for a while now, and as you just mentioned, your other claim to fame is generating the inner ear organoids that contain functional hair cells from human pluripotent stem cells, right? And that was a Nature Biotech paper not too long ago. Of course, there you're talking about hair cells that are important for hearing as opposed to the hair cells in your skin. Yeah. But as very, you very confusing. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. But of course, like you mentioned, there there are similarities when it comes to the differentiation protocols. And you said that your hair differentiation was kind of a byproduct of your inner ear differentiation. So it's kind of a matter of tweaking the differentiation to get it to go the way that you want it to. And of course, all that comes back to the fundamental developmental principles that you're, of course, following during the whole differentiation process. You're just trying to mimic that. And so that kind of got me to think, how do you figure out that tweak? Is it solely just a matter of relying on the developmental principles and trying to mimic those as best as possible? Or is it kind of a, you know, a guess and check kind of effort too? Mm. I, I think it's a little bit of both. At least in the early days of doing this work, we were scouring the literature for uh, looking for studies where they had treated a zebrafish with a BMP inhibitor at a certain time point, and then they got a bigger otic placode to develop or something like that um, as kind of hints at, at when and, and what signal we'd need to, to hit the cells with. Um, but now I'm, I'm really excited about the, the developments in single-cell genomics, we can now kind of uh, survey the cells that are developing at different time points of our induction approach and get a better insight or understanding of, of the mechanisms that the cells are producing endogenously. Um, so that's, that's a major focus of, of the work now is, is trying to figure out how, um, how do our uh, kind of uh, guidance cues lead to these self-organizing processes and, and what is actually happening during the self-organization. What signal is the epidermis producing that's telling the dermis to start generating a follicle, that sort of thing? Um, and can we then go in and intervene with a, an additional treatment at a specific time point and, and potentially accelerate development of of hair or other tissues that we see in, in the culture. So now, now we're at a stage where we can actually uh, learn from the developing organoids and then go back and modify the process as needed. Yes, try and abbreviate that 70 to 150 day diff protocol, I guess, is, is on the exactly. list of priorities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I know you, you you uh, and we all know that they we're talking big problems here with the skin, with grafting and cancer and modeling. But of course, there is that cosmetic element. And I would be really surprised if you hadn't gotten a ton of calls, both from Big Pharma as well as my uncle Rudolph, about <laughs> cosmetic applications, cosmetic applications of these de novo hair follicles. And I know this is not a huge priority for you scientifically, medically. But it does raise the question, I know, in terms of just like as a scientist uh, of the maturity. Arun and I talk about maturity uh, all the time, maturity of these uh, pluripotent stem cell derived organoids and cells in general. And uh, you show indeed in the paper that these fo follicles have molecular characteristics that are typical of fetal stages and generate these lanugo or vellus hairs. And this isn't surprising, I think. Uh, 
on the contrary, it kind of underscores how bona fide these organoids are. They make the hair that they should make at the correlate stage. Um, but it takes all those months to get to that stage, as we just kind of alluded to. Uh, what do you think it's going to take to get? I mean, I know maybe somebody out there would be psyched to have Lanugo hair uh, when, <laughs> when they got nothing. But uh, let's say you wanted to go terminal. What, what what do you think it takes to get to terminal state? Like accelerating it? Or do you envision like even the possibility that, you know, you could just let the organoid go and it would have, you have 15 month old uh, twin boys. Like they have those beautiful, yeah. beautiful hairs that you almost wish they could yeah. keep forever, but they don't, they get coarser. Like, is that what we're talking about here? They're going to have organoids that are going for, you know, years until they get the coarse hairs and start growing a beard. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a very great point. So, uh, yeah, in the paper, we show that the hair that grows is is similar to what the hair is growing on the fetus. And so nobody I don't think anybody's really clamoring for fetal hair <laughs> on the top of their head. Um, but I, I think we really don't know yet whether or not if we implanted these cells or these organoids on on, the, on somebody's scalp, whether or not those fetal hairs would be converted to terminal hairs over time. I mean, that's that's essentially what happens in the in the body after you're born. You uh, the, there's uh, hormones that are that are a part of this process of converting those lanugo hairs to more terminal hair follicles, um, and so. It, that's that's a big open question is whether or not and the thing same thing goes for anatomical sight so uh, we don't know if we implant a, a facial skin organoid on some on the palm of somebody's hand whether or not it will maintain that uh, anatomical identity or kind of mix in well with its neighbors and, and take on more of a palm fate um, those are questions that we're we're really keen to answer um, and, and you mentioned the timing and how long it takes us to grow these skin organoids. Other experiments we're running night, right now is, uh, can we take an organoid at day 30 after a month and implant that in, in mouse skin and, and have it mature once it's implanted and, and you don't really need to culture them for so long? Um, this, these are great questions that we're trying to answer that would make this a more commercially viable uh, technique. Um, and uh, I'm kind of blanking on the rest of your question. <laughs> no, that was, I think that you answered it um, and you more than answered it. I think it's notable also just because, uh, uh, just to, to answer my own question a bit here, you reminded me in your answer that I read this story recently about a young girl who um, lost her arms and for lack of any other transplant, she had a, a, a man's arms um, transplanted onto her hairy man's arms um, with different mm. darker skin. Um, this is in India. And over the course, very quickly, over the course of, of months, if, if not, I mean, maybe a year, uh, the hair receded, the coloring of her, of the skin on the arms changed. Um, and they became, they, you know, at first she looked, they looked unnatural. But uh, despite the scale, um, it kind of, the, the, those attributes, um, sexually di dimorphism, I guess, was, was receded, um, as you said, and alluded to probably due to the hormones. So I guess um, that these, these follicles are responsive, although that's an adult. Who knows uh, what, what's going to go on with these pluripotent stem cell derived. But I think, uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to, they're probably remarkably plastic. 
Yeah, and and so one thing we noticed with the the xenograft experiments, where we actually take the organoids and implant them in the mouse skin, um, it, it wasn't. It was it was remarkable that we saw that these cystic structures actually open up and kind of blossom and integrate into the the mouse skin, uh, but also the follicles themselves kind of took on more adult-like features. They had these more elaborate sebaceous glands, which produce the, the sebum or the oil that lubricates your skin. Um, so we might have already kind of witnessed some of that plasticity and, and ability of the tissue to mature further once we implant it. Hmm. So a ton of open questions, definitely, and so many possibilities for using these skin organoids for modeling disease and potentially for translational purposes as well. But shifting gears a little bit, talking a little bit more about your lab, you actually just mm -hmm. moved late last year to Boston Children's Hospital, right down the road from actually where I used to work in the the new research building right across the street over on a oh, yeah. black yeah black fan circle. Mm -hmm. So we all know that you know the HMS Harvard Medical School is a is a leader when it comes to bio medical research, and that's no secret, right? But the groundwork for your organoid work was laid at Indiana University, where you did your PhD and your postdoc in the lab of Ari Hashino before starting up your own lab at IU, too. And a lot of folks might not know this, but Indiana University is really a powerhouse when it comes to developmental biology, and it's true for cardiac developmental biology, too. And it's not too often these days that somebody does the majority of their research at a single institution, but in your case, it really paid off big time. So what made you stick around at one place for so long? Was it the science that was so red hot and exciting? Was it the continuity and the familiarity? So talk about your journey and talk about your journey specifically at IU. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it, it came down to great mentorship. You mentioned my my mentor at, at IU School of Medicine, Ari Ashino. Um, I had a lot of latitude to kind of develop my own research directions within her lab um, as a graduate student. And then Toward the tail end of my graduate work, we published our first mouse inner ear organoid paper in Nature, and and that that experience, kind of getting that paper published and 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 uh, doing some interviews like this, got me really excited about continuing my work, and um, and just staying on to to do a postdoc to see just see if we could recreate this process with human pluripotent stem cells. We didn't really know if we could do it, um, and. And it was amazing. A lot of the mechanisms were conserved, so we were able to to reproduce the process pretty quickly with human stem cells. And and I I, I feel like I've I've built a career of kind of happy accidents, uh, propelling me forward. First, uh, finding a way to generate these inner ear organoids, and then um, the timing of of our publication of the the human work. Uh, coincided pretty well with some open positions at IU, and um, I was able to, to set up shop and start my my lab with um, uh, a startup funding and and get going uh, without having to move across the country. And, and we had we had some forward momentum going, so it it was a good deal and a great place to start my career. Yeah, you're a, a pretty young guy. You're a young guy who's made a, I wouldn't say outsized impact. I'm sure uh, your parents always saw it coming, but you made a big impact. Um, and now I know you alluded to the fact that it's like happy accidents, but you know, now they're giving you the blank check. You got the platform 
at Boston Children's that you can build out to whatever endeavor fires your imagination. Um, so you, you got, obviously, I'm sure you have a plan. You got to have a plan. You can't rely on any more happy accidents. So looking forward, yeah. you kind of have to look back a little bit. Um, what do you attribute your success? I know we kind of just asked you that, but if you had to like put your finger on it, or alternatively, maybe sometimes it's really just a matter of avoiding the pitfalls. Are there any pitfalls that you think are important to avoid? I mean, any advice you can give to some of our, our younger our audience in training? Um, any attribute that you've nurtured in yourself along the way or that you look for in your trainees that you think is vital to uh, success uh, nowadays? Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to kind of self-reflect and, and look back and try to determine how was I successful and what were, what were the most important elements of that? I think now that I'm in a position where I can mentor students and uh, postdocs and and peer mentor uh, faculty that are kind of at the same level as me, um, I think that mentorship is really uh, the most critical thing that you should be looking for as a as a as a budding scientist is looking for that. Uh, nurturing environment within a lab that's that's really going to allow you to um, create a space where you can pursue ideas that are ambitious and uh, impactful. Um, I mentioned my work in Aries Lab. I think that uh, one of the secrets to my ultimate success was that I was allowed to kind of take my own approach and, and explore some new ideas that uh, seemed a little risky and uh, but potentially had a high reward. Um, and having that opportunity as a graduate student, I think was uh, incredible. I mean, I could have very easily failed hmm. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here talking to you today, um, but because I went through that experience and struggled a bit to, to develop my own project and own direction, um, I think that that was ultimately what, what has led to the success I've had so far. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think um, freedom is really important, especially at the grad student level. If you have a PI that's willing to trust you to develop your own questions and pursue your own academic and scientific ambitions, I think that's a huge, huge mm -hmm. plus. Um, and it's definitely contributed to, to your success for sure. So pearls of wisdom coming from a pretty young PI. And uh, before we let you go, Dr. Kohler, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. So first off, are there any non-science books that you're reading or that you've read that are awesome? And, you know, what are those? Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I thought about this when you gave me the, the heads up on this question. Uh, <laughs> I've recently started, this is going to change gears entirely. Um, I've recently started rereading a favorite book of mine that, that my wife gave me a few years ago to, to look at. She's, she's a, she was an English major in college and, and read this for a class. Um, but there's a book called The Wind-Up Bird Chronicles by Haruki Murakami. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not familiar with Haruki Murakami's work, uh, he's a very famous Japanese author um, uh, in the surrealist genre. I don't know if – I would say that Haruki Murakami writes like David Lynch directs, if you know the mm -hmm. films of David Lynch or, or shows that he's created. Um, very uh, dreamlike narratives – 
um, and uh, a, a great escape from <laughs> the rigorous scientific literature. Um, it's about a guy who loses his cat and tries to find it, uh, and then in the process loses his wife as well and tries to find his wife. So wow. hopefully that's a good hook for you <laughs> to bring, bring your readers in. Uh, but it's it's a very strange book. I'm a little embarrassed to recommend it, but I think um, it's it's a fascinating read. Yeah, no, we get recommendations of all sorts of books, but that's that's a unique one, definitely. <laughs> we'll have to take a look at that one. So finally, what was your greatest or memorable science revelation or surprise, in other words, an aha moment? And on the other end, what was the greatest disappointment that was not what you were expecting when you were doing science? Yeah, so I think... Uh, both of those are wrapped into one experiment that is part of this paper we just published. Uh, we, uh, when we were thinking about how do we take these skin organoids and, and graft them onto a mouse, uh, we looked at the literature and came up with a number of different ways that we thought would work. Um, and, and we originally thought we'd need to dissociate the cells and then meld them with some sort of collagen matrix and implant those on the, on the mouse. Um, we tried a number of different configurations uh, with or without the collagen matrix, and it was really disappointing. We didn't see anything developing. The wounds would kind of heal, and then the, the cells that we implanted would disappear. Um, and, and then the biggest surprise is that after months and months and months of, of doing these experiments, we decided, hey, let's just, let's just throw the whole organoid <laughs> into a wound site and see what happens. And, and that, that was the experiment that worked. We uh, very quickly, after a few weeks, we saw these outward growing human hairs growing from the wound site. And that was just remarkable. Um, so that there, there you go. Those are my my two moments of <laughs> happiness and, and disparity all wrapped into one. <laughs> Carl, I'm not telling you how to do your job. God knows you're you're very big up and I'm a small fry. But what isn't that like the control? <laughs> 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 just kidding anyway i gotta be honest this if you guys haven't seen this it's the most spectacular thing you you will see and it goes to show because this was spectacular a year ago and it just came out a week ago and it's still captivating the scientific world uh, and that's in the midst of all these other things that are going on as well so i really invite you implore you to have a look at this work from a, a young scientist who's, you know, he did the ear, he's moved on to the skin. God only knows what's next, uh, but we're going to have him on when that happens. It could be a matter of months. Carl, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It was really, really delightful and fascinating. Thank you so much. This was my pleasure. This is great. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Before we go, though, we want to plug Dr. Kohler. He mentioned uh, after the interview that he's looking for postdocs. You guys, if you're listening to this and you're looking for your next stop, this lab is it. Uh, I mean, if you're ready and prepared and worthy, they're doing great work there, as you must have heard or seen by now. You can send your applications to his website, Carl Kohler at Boston Children's Hospital. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email 
at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode, guys. It was a great one. We'll see you again in a couple weeks.